It's very good to see you this morning. It's good to see you every week. But when I say it's very good to see you this morning, it's with this thought in mind that I'm returning to the pulpit to preach again. I've been gone a few weeks and certainly appreciate uh, Terrence uh, preaching in my absence uh, very, very much. But I have to say I'm very excited about this series that we're going to start today. And I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 7. And I'm going to read the first, uh, the first 24 verses. John chapter 7. Page 892 uh, in your pew Bible. Now it begins this way. It says, after this, Jesus went about uh, in Galilee. Uh, he would not go to Judea and so forth. After this refers to the feeding of the 5,000, which is what took place in John chapter 6. But now we start with John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths, or feast of tabernacles, was at hand. And so his brothers, it would be his biological brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. No, let's go down there to Jerusalem. Show it. For not even his brothers really believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm, I'm not going up to this feast. My time is not yet fully come. And after saying this, he did remain in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he did go up. He also went up, not publicly, uh, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning, literally letters, when he has never studied? So Jesus answered, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered then, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask you now that you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. 
is God my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we start a new sermon series, and what we're doing is returning to the Gospel of John. Last year I preached from John's Gospel, chapter 1 through chapter 6, and so I had concluded with chapter 6, Jesus feeding the 5,000, um, and that took place in, in Galilee. And, and in John, in John's Gospel, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, marks the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. In other words, Jesus' report, uh, John's report, Jesus' ministry in Galilee ends with the end of chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000. Then when we come to chapter 7, from here on out, John's accounts of Jesus and his life are focused entirely on Judea. So John chapter 7 is a transition point in the gospel, and I think it's a good point to begin a sermon series. Now I want to give you a little frame of reference as we go into this new series, as you think about it. All of the dialogue in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 took place during the Feast of Tabernacles, a single time or single short period. It was a week-long feast at the end of the fall harvest, which would have been grapes and olives, not wheat or barley from earlier in the year, and it would have occurred in late September or in early October. John 9 covers Jesus' healing of the blind man. John 10 covers Jesus' very famous Good Shepherd discourse, I am the Good Shepherd. We're not sure exactly when those occurred in relation to the Feast of Tabernacles, but when we come to John 11, which is the healing of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, we know that came a couple of weeks before the Passover, which would have been the following March or April after the previous September, October. And of course, the, it was during the Passover at that time that Jesus was crucified. So that gives you kind of a frame of reference here of a few, of a few months. Now, to step into this series a little bit further, Recall with me how Jesus' miracle of his feeding of the 5,000 ended. It ended, if you remember, with most of his followers abandoning him. They loved the bread, the fish tasted great, but they could not bear Jesus pointing out the truth behind the sign. And the truth behind the sign of the multiplied loaves and fishes was, Whoever feeds on my flesh, on my flesh, whoever drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. They could not bear this teaching that he was in fact the bread of life, the bread of God come down from heaven to give life to the world. So the stage is set for Jesus' Judean ministry here. And if his ministry in Galilee ended up with abandonment, you have to understand that his ministry in Judea was marked by ferocious opposition and plotting to murder Jesus. And that actually began back in chapter, chapter 5. And while this plotting in the background, is the background, you know, uh, the antagonism and the denunciation of Jesus is in the foreground of these texts that we're going to be looking at. So what we're going to do in this series is we're going to focus on how Jesus fearlessly proclaimed his identity and defends his trustworthiness. We are going to be studying Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, but we're going to be studying Christian apologetics as Jesus practiced it himself. And I think you're going to be surprised. 
This essentially is Jesus' self-defense. And it's why these chapters are so, are so significant. Now in our passage, Jesus makes, the passage I read today, Jesus makes a number of striking statements, any one of which is worth exploring. And they provide the context, really, for what we're going to focus on. So I want to draw your attention to three of these amazing, striking statements that Jesus makes in the passage. In verse 7, he says to his biological brothers, brothers born to Mary after he was born, he says to his biological brothers who are taunting him to go up to Jerusalem, go prove yourself there by your miracles, though they know the danger that he faces. Jesus replies to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Then in verse 19, he responds to the Jews in Jerusalem who are both impressed and scandalized by his teaching. And he says to them, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. And he names their lawlessness. They are lawless. And the evidence of their lawlessness is that they would murder him if they could. They would violate the sixth commandment if they could. So it's not Moses giving you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law. What a statement that is. I'm going to give you a third statement. It's verse 24. After rebuking their lawlessness, Jesus rebukes their superficiality. They approve of circumcision of the body on the Sabbath, but they condemn the healing of the body. And Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Don't be superficial. Get down and think about this, for heaven's sakes. At every point, I mean, Jesus gives no ground. At every point, Jesus sort of takes the argument and turns it back on his critics. He, he takes it to them. He, he exposes them. He says their condemnation of him is born of his exposing their sin, the reality that their works are evil. His, their condemnation of him reveals their own lawlessness and their desire to kill him. Uh, their condemnation of him is not born of spirituality, but of superficiality. Judging according to, to, to appearances. Uh, he turns all of their arguments back on them. It's profound. Jesus exposes how ill-motivated, how lawless, how superficial his opponents are. But the question still remains. Jesus, how do we know that you are telling the truth? How do we know that you are true, that you are trustworthy, that you are reliable? And folks, isn't this really the supreme question of Christian apologetics? So Jesus answers this question in a way that I think will surprise you. I think it's an astonishing answer. His answer to this question is in verse 17. And this is what he says. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now, I want to read that again. This is his answer. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, 
he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I, I want us to really focus on this together. Jesus is saying, you will know if I'm telling the truth, if your will is to do God's will. Knowing involves the intellect. But the essence of knowing Jesus is teaching, the essence of knowing that Jesus is true, that when he says, I say to you, is the same thing as saying, thus says the Lord, the essence of knowing that Jesus is true is not intellectual. And in the same way, knowing involves our feelings. But the essence of knowing that Jesus is true is not a feeling. The essence of knowing is a matter, he says, of the will, of whether you will to do God's will. The essence of knowing has to do with our moral predisposition. It is a fundamentally moral question. Do we want what God wants because God wants it? Are we committed to God's will because God wills it? Because if this is the case, then your hearts really are open to God and you will see the reality and authority of God in Christ. You have eyes to see, you have ears to hear. But if that is not your condition, you cannot know whether I'm true. So Jesus here is not engaged in some sort of circular reasoning. He's not saying, he's not saying, you will believe I speak the truth if you want to believe that. You know, that's not what he's saying at all. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying something extremely profound. He's saying, if you are willing to do what God wills, you will know that I am true. You will recognize God's authority in me. He's saying that how a person responds to him is not a measure of his own believability. It's a measure of the person's will in relationship, in their relationship to God. It's the measure of what they bring to the conversation, to the gospel conversation they have with Christ. Now Jesus is telling us, he's talking to the very people who are rejecting him. He's talking to the people who are meeting his teaching with scoffing amazement on the ground that he lacked rabbinical credentials. He's telling them that the problem is not his lack of credentials. The problem is their own insubordination, their own rebellion against the authority of God. And that's why they will not recognize God's authority in what he is teaching. He's saying your works are evil, your motives are lawless, the judgments are superficial. And I would ask this question, is this any way to win friends and influence people? And the answer is absolutely not. This is no way to win friends and influence people. Not at all. And if those things had been Jesus' aim, he would have done exactly what his brothers had urged him to do. He would have gone right down to Jerusalem. He would have wowed everyone with his tremendous miracles. And wasn't this exactly what Satan tempted Jesus to do when he said, if you're the son of God, you go down to Jerusalem. Let's go on the highest temple, uh, uh, highest pillar of the temple. You toss yourself off. The angels will bury you up and whoa, 
everybody will be wowed. And Jesus wouldn't do that because his aim was not simply to win friends and influence people. Jesus' aim was and remains to make disciples. And making a disciple means provoking people to painful, honest, gut-wrenching self-reflection and to come to see the disorientation that sin has brought to their lives. The lawlessness in spite of the morality, the superficiality in spite of the fact they take themselves so seriously, Let me put it to you another way. This is the truth. But in essence, Jesus is saying to them and saying to us, is when you hear the good news about me, it's just you and me looking at each other. It's you and me, my friend. It's just you and me. It don't run to human authorities. Don't hide behind superficiality. It's just you and me. And there is no defense against the truth. If your will is to do God's will, you will know if I'm true. Well, John Piper puts it this way. A rebellious will toward God produces a blind eye toward Jesus. And even when rebellious people claim Jesus, and please don't assume everyone in church is a Christian, not all people who claim to be Christians are Christians, even, even when rebellious people claim Jesus, they're not embracing the main thing about him because they don't see it. And that brings us to our next, to our next verse, verse 18. Jesus adds, the one who speaks on his own authority, in other words, from himself, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, he's true. So the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who speak or seeks the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. You know, the one thing about Jesus that is completely undeniable is that he was completely given over to God's glory and not his own. And to follow him, one must be completely given to God's glory and not their own. It is self-glorying that keeps people from Christ, that keeps them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus ever did, everything that Jesus ever said drew attention to the reality of God and how wonderfully great He is. And when people miss that point, and when they began to just focus on Him as if this was about Jesus apart from God, like when they called Jesus good teacher, what was His response? No one is good but God alone. Even then! 
When people miss the point, he deflected attention away from himself back onto God. He never ceased to rejoice in who God is, as the creator, as the just judge, as the redeemer whose love is so profound and real, as the one who makes atonement for us so that we might forgive, be forgiven, as the one who satisfies his own justice. He never ceases to rejoice in who this God is and in his relationship to this God. He always described his relationship to this Father in heaven in terms of obedience. My will is to do his will. Again, quoting, quoting from John Piper, what marks a person as true and not false is his devotion to the glory of God. That's what marks a person as true. Jesus was so submitted to the glory of his Father that he was willing to lose his life for it. He was so little devoted to his own earthly comfort and security and fame that his teaching shines with a kind of wonder unlike anything merely human. You compare Jesus with the politicians downtown who only have your best interests at heart. No one believes that. For the most part, it's clear, they're about their own glory. And even if they say things that are true, it does not mean they are true. And I'm telling you, Jesus is all about the will of God. He is true. And when people are about their own glory or their own self-exaltation or themselves, they cannot be true. They're polluted. God did not create us to be all about ourselves. He just simply did it. It's part of sin. And yes, it's universal, it's common to everyone. We're aware of it within ourselves probably every hour of, of every day. But that does not mean it is not part of sin. That does not mean it is a natural part of who we are and the wonderful way God made us. It is not. It just, honestly, it is not. And it truly keeps us from God. It keeps us from recognizing the truth about Christ. It does. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a profoundly moral question. Those who will God's will see this. Those who will God's will receive his word. Christ's word is true because their own will is not, is not locked up in a rebellion against, an underlying rebellion against the truth. So think with me about this. Just flesh this out. Just to underscore this. What was the appeal? What appeal was Jesus' brothers making to Jesus when they tried to bait him to go to Jerusalem, present himself, and do miracles? What was the appeal? The appeal was that if he did that, he would gain glory from men. And that's exactly what the brothers would have been interested in. So why wouldn't Jesus? Or think about this, when the Jews in Jerusalem reacted to Jesus' teaching, denying his credentials, what was the issue? Whether he had received glory from men, because this is what mattered to them. Do the right people give you glory? Do the right people endorse you? Do you carry their credentials? It didn't matter to Christ. It really didn't. It was something to hide behind. People were hide behind. His lack of the credentials. I mean, he had the very credentials of God. They couldn't see it. 
Or think with me, when Jesus exposed the lawlessness of those to whom Moses had given the law, what was the issue? The issue was that the law was a point, possessing the law was a point of pride for these people. It was a point for self-glory, when in fact the law was given to convict of sin. Or when he exposed the superficiality of those who condemned him for healing a man on the Sabbath, what was the issue? The issue is that superficiality in judging and condemning is what enabled them or allowed them to glory in themselves, to exalt themselves at the expense even of the Son of God. In our time, we see exactly the same things happening today. When people insist they personally would have Jesus, they would have Jesus do a miracle for them, they must see Jesus do a miracle for them in order to believe what they are doing is demanding the gratification of their egos. That's the truth. They are unwilling to undertake a gut-level self-reflection of what Jesus has so bountifully revealed already for all. When Jesus' teaching is dismissed out of hands on the ground that he was just a, a religious figure, a Jewish figure from 2,000 years past, this is so much like dismissing him on the ground that he lacks respectable credentials for today. It is such a dodge. When people claim that their lives are above board because they espouse a certain morality, is this not like grasping the law as if it is a vaccine against our need for God's Redeemer? Isn't it really like wrapping ourselves in the very law of God to actually conceal our own sinfulness? What are the universal tendency to judge so quickly and so superficially? Is it not the expression of our will to exalt and justify ourselves? Just listen to the folks and how they talk about each other downtown. Jesus' words are as necessary and are as relevant today as ever because God's will has not changed. So I want to appeal to you today, don't be put off by these words of Jesus. Let them sink in and then let them sink in still more. Because Jesus is about the work to this day through the Holy Spirit, even in this room at this very hour, Jesus is about making disciples. And he makes disciples through his word that challenges, that provokes, that convicts us. And when we finally recognize the truth about ourselves enough to recoil from that, so that we also begin to cry out in our hearts, what do you know, even what Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. That's when we can see that Jesus is true. And when we see that Jesus is true, we believe in him. That is the truth that will set you free. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for this portion of your word. It isn't easy. I mean, it's not simple. Jesus is really dealing with heart and soul issues, and complexities of sin. 
And in all of this, he never shirks from, uh, he, he never withdraws or treats one iota from his authority. That his authority is God's authority. Father invested in the Son. I pray you'd help us take this passage to heart. Be built up and changed and moved by it. There's something here for each and every one of us today, uh, regardless of how we enter the room. So we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.